This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we preview some design and fashion stories from Monocle's latest edition of The Forecast. We visit a Bell foundry in Arizona and meet a Danish brand who have reimagined the humble bed frame. All that and more coming up on Monocle on Design. Hello and welcome to the show. Uh, we're going we're gonna to dive straight into it today because I'm joined in the studio by Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Natalie, how are you? Hello, I'm very good. Always fun to have you in here. We're going to have a little bit of a chat uh, about the forecast, which I've, I've sort of mentioned at the top there. It's on newsstands now and, you know, all the, all the best ones should have it front and centre. And for good reason, because we have some excellent stories, as the title suggests, forecasting some great events and, and some, some great movers and shakers in the world of design and fashion in, in 2023. I understand that you spoke to the chief executive officer at Hugo Boss. Can you tell me a little bit about that chat that you had with Daniel Greta? Yeah, of course. I think we had a really great lineup of interviews in the forecast issue of people doing really interesting things that we think will also impact the way the industries are moving in 2023 and beyond. And Daniel Greeder is one of them. He is the CEO of Hugo Boss. He spent over 20 years at Tommy Hilfiger. So his understanding of business and brand building is incredible. And as soon as he went to Hugo Boss, he set some really incredible and really ambitious targets to reach $4 billion dollars in revenues by 2025, which is double the company's uh, current revenue. And he talked to me about how he plans to get there. And it's just really interesting to see how he changed the logo of the brand. He's rethinking how he's doing shows with really these really big spectacles that he started hosting during Milan Fashion Week. But still, the focus of the brand is tailoring. And he speaks about bringing this into the future, creating the suits of the future, as he called them, and uh, investing in all these new age materials that are really promising. Is that linked in with the brand building? You, you're talking about, you know, the future of the suit, the future of tailoring. And I guess to communicate that, is is, is that why they, they did this whole new logo redesign and, and, and shifted a few things around? Exactly. When you've got a heritage brand, you need to keep uh, rethinking and reimagining the brand codes and, and how you market it, branding. The rules are always changing in, in this uh, space. So even something like rethinking the logo, I think he changed uh, the name to Boss and uh, designed a, a much sleeker, more modern logo. And then Hugo is uh, now a younger iteration of the brand uh, focused on on casual wear so he split it like that renewed the visuals and uh, just is thinking really big just like with his uh, financial targets you'll see big campaigns on billboards uh, really interesting names uh, fronting those campaigns and uh, the the fashion show as well, I think, is, is a big one because he told me, you know, we, we live in such a saturated, noisy world at the moment that you really need to make a statement or if you're inviting your clients or press to, to an event, think about ways of uh, making a statement. And that's what he's doing when, when he hosts shows during Fashion Week. It's not five minutes of models walking up and down. It's real spectacles and a party after 
the 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 design of the of the venue that they that they're choosing is really important the music so really immersive experiences and and great design i mean what what i like about that is it sounds like i mean that you know other maybe bigger brands more established brands can look to hugo boss and or boss and or or hugo <laughs> as uh, i guess inspiration for how they might want to do things how they can reinvent themselves but i think also for for smaller brands and and smaller labels and smaller designers it sounds like there there are some takeaways there in terms of like it's it's not just about showing your wares or your your garments your clothes but it's about making that statement and and what that looks like for you might be different but really it's it's about capturing people's imagination I mean, I also understand you've got, or I understand, I, I can see it right in front of me on the, in these lovely, lovely pages, but you've got a, a report from Hong Kong on how luxury retail spaces are shifting. Can we dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, so our great colleague, James Chambers, reported the story in Hong Kong. He spoke to Blondie Tsang, who is the new president at Lane Crawford. Lane Crawford is really one of the leaders in retail across China with uh, some of their flagships in Hong Kong. And uh, what Blondie was saying was that, yes, they've had a really tough year, but they're not resting. They're now, with, with the borders opening up, especially in Hong Kong, they are ready to come back to Europe, reclaim their seats at fashion shows, refresh store design, bring in new brands and really push their business to claim their dominance in the market and just revive uh, retail across China with quite a bit of a focus on those really top tier uh, Chinese consumers. Uh, So there's a lot of uh, VIP events and uh, more locations opening in, in China, catering to those customers who apparently will buy everything three times because they've got houses all across the world. So it makes sense for people like Lane Crawford to focus on them and to service them. Sounds like more more business savvy. We've got time to talk about one more story. I mean, I know uh, you've got a, a report from Alicante and how this region in southern Spain is becoming a hub for shoe manufacturers. Has it always been one? Is it emerging? Uh, why should we be paying attention to Alicante? So Alicante has a history in shoemaking. When people started finding it harder and harder to earn from agriculture, they started weaving shoes. So the skills and the craft has always been part of the history of the region. But of course, in more recent years, a lot of the manufacturing and that business went to China and to Asia because brands were trying to keep their costs as low as possible. But now, given that we are thinking a little bit more about bringing manufacturing uh, closer to us, keeping things local and championing craft, there's a lot more attention back to Alicante, which actually the workers there can produce with competitive price points, but they really have the skills. So yeah, we had one of our reporters, Hester, go to Alicante and visit some of the best shoe factories in the region and uh, speak to some of the designers, both local and international, who are now producing in Alicante. But I think we spoke quite a bit about fashion and you're always the one asking me questions. So maybe time to turn the table a little bit and speak this. about design. <laughs> let's let's do that. Um, oh, gosh, I've been sitting there waiting for you to, to, to finally uh, spring a question back at me. So I'm, I'm super, super excited uh, with, with the design coverage uh, in the forecast. We've done this uh, brilliant story. Gregory Scruggs went to the School of Architecture in remote central Arizona uh, to report on the evolution of, of this famous school. I mean, it was established by Frank Lloyd Wright, who had this sort of ethos of learning by doing. And I guess over 
<laughs> recent years, particularly, there's been a little bit of a, a little bit of tension between the school itself and, and the Frank Lloyd Wright uh, Foundation. They've ultimately separated, and, it, and it's resulted in the School of Architecture relocating to a new campus called Acrosanti, which is in the Arizona desert. But many of those same sort of, I guess, philosophies from those early days of, of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright School, where you actually you know, learnt by really immersing yourself in the architecture. All the students live on campus. Uh, you know, they, they conduct field workshops, uh, you know, and, and Greg brilliantly covers that in the story. They, they go out and build sculptures in the desert to, to try and get a feel for how materiality and, and climate affects, affects the way they're going to build. The reason it appealed to me is that there's this very practical, hands-on part of the course at the School of Architecture. So that's what I wanted to cover. I think if you're looking at design education there can often be a real separation between, you know, what you're actually learning in classrooms versus what you're actually ultimately start to deliver when you're on site as a working professional. And I think this school provides a, a really nice model for how to do that well, which sort of, uh, Natalie, I know why you're wondering why I'm going on about this, uh, which sort of <laughs> lends perfectly into a piece that Gregory filed for us while he was he was reporting that story. He, he visited the Acrosanti Bell Foundry. I guess bronze making ceramics aren't exactly new crafts. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Okay. I'm, I'm not the expert here, so I'll trust you. <laughs> well, neither am I, but but Greg's certainly done all, all, all the legwork on this. So both have, um, you know, thousands of years of history behind them, but it doesn't mean that there aren't new ways of, I guess, thinking about these ancient art forms. So Gregory met some of the artisans making bronze and ceramic bells and wind chimes, and, and that's what we're going to hear from now. High in the Arizona desert lies a unique bell-making operation. So I'm pulling a finished or a dry bell out of the silt mold. So that's what it looks like. And then we don't glaze our bells, we powder our bells. So we use two kinds of oxide powders. So one of them's a speck stone and one of them is a rutile. And then we also mix the two to create a third color. At Arcosanti, an experimental urban laboratory envisioned by Italian architect Paolo Soleri in the 1970s, artisans train in green sand bronze casting and ceramics using silt molds. While both of these techniques have long histories, they came together under Soleri's tutelage to create a distinctive craft. Foundry manager Ali Gibbs explains more. Paolo was working at Cosanti, which was his first project in Arizona, which is down in Paradise Valley. It was started in the mid-50s, and he began making ceramic bells uh, down at Cosanti using the materials of the surrounding area, so the silt and the clay from the desert that he was located in, and brought that tradition up here. He had an apprentice who had previously done bronze casting and worked in a bronze foundry and who brought that modality of bell making to Paolo and taught Paolo how to do it. And then it was added to our repertoire of bell making and brought up here from Cosanti. The green sand casting method is a long-standing method of creating bronze objects. All of the bell forms themselves, so all of the shapes of our bells, were designed and created by Paolo Soleri, and we've been using those same 32 bell forms since bronze bell making started um, at Arco. 
We also design on the outside of our bells. So a lot of bells that you see are just flat on the outside, just have a smooth texture all the way around, or maybe an inscription. And our bells have designs created by our artisans. Um, And each artisan here has their own personal design language within our overarching kind of theme of abstract geometry, non-representational work that we put on our bells. Uh, So each bell is absolutely handcrafted um, when you're getting a Cosanti one bell. Our Cosanti artisans practice their craft in a dramatic open-air setting perched on a mesa surrounded by cliffs of basalt rock. Despite the extremes of the desert climate, clever design makes for a comfortable workspace. The foundry itself is in what's called an apse, which is a half dome, and it's uh, on a south-facing axis to uh, utilize passive solar. So in the summer, when the sun is higher in the sky, the, the apse provides shade for our workspace, and in the winter, as the sun gets lower and lower in the sky, the sun creeps more and more uh, into the workspace and, and heats it and keeps us toasty. So I'll walk up to our ceramic studio, which is also in an apse, and in the winter, the ceramics artisans will be in here in flip-flops and shorts. <laughs> so passive solar works pretty well in that regard, but the architecture is all concrete and a lot of rounded, arching forms that are really really unique in terms of having a foundry space in soft architecture because most foundries are in kind of warehouse spaces where you don't have a view, you can't see outside, there's not really windows, it's very dark and dank and ours being open air is absolutely magical. Our foundry looks out into what's called a wash, um, which is a dry creek bed and kind of a ravine uh, on, on both sides. And so we look out into this beautiful high desert landscape full of uh, juniper and native grasses and prickly pear cactus basically as far as you can see to the horizon we've got cows that free range on the other side of the mesa when it's rainy and and when it's rained north of here um, our creek bed flows and so we have a little babbling brook underneath our foundry and cypress trees all around and as you walk up and out of the foundry onto the rest of site there's Mediterranean cypress and olive and fig trees and architecture that looks like it could be from Mars. There is a special relationship between bells small enough to hold in your hand and the soaring apps large enough to house an entire foundry or studio with room for dozens to practice their craft. The secret lies in the silt from the Agua Fria River, which flows through the property. Ceramics artisan Maitri Meta explains. The silt casting process, um, I think, has become kind of related or associated with Arcosani, um, especially because that preceded the architecture, but they used that same silt casting process, um, which they like extrapolated from ceramics to build some buildings here. Our app structure and the foundry apps as well were built partially using that silt casting process. So I feel like everything at Arcosani is like 
all about mold making. So the structure is an apse, so a half dome, open air. There is a platform, and then there are rooms behind the platform. So they dug out those rooms. They're underground. If you go around the other side, you can see like the hill, and you stand on top of the rooms. They built those just with traditional formwork and poured them into place. And then the facade of the building was made using big concrete molds on the ground and then raised up. And then the half of the dome was made using a silt cast. So they filled that vacant space with a lot of silt, same river silt. They just went down the river and brought it up in buckets. Tons and tons of silt. Silt will also absorb pigment that it can transfer to concrete or clay. We haven't tried that, but I would like to. So they made the silt dome and then they carved into it, so carved negatives into it. So they carved a pattern into the surface of the silt and then they also painted on a natural pigment. So there's two colors used. There's like a ochre and then like a terracotta color. So those were painted onto the silt. And then they first poured like a very thin slurry layer of concrete. And that first layer was to absorb that pigment. And then like a thicker, much thicker layer on top, reinforced concrete with rebar. And then I think that concrete took like a month-ish to cure. And then they just dug out all the silt from underneath. So remove the mold. That silt casting process started with ceramics and then... It was developed into, like, an architectural building method. While ceramic silt molds are the heart and soul of Arcosanti bell making, the most eye-catching work comes from the bronze foundry. So we have a patina process that is a muriatic acid patina, which uh, is charged with copper wire scrap, so it gives it that kind of Statue of Liberty green and sometimes reddish patina. And our other finish is called a burnish finish, and that involves uh, a really high polish to our bells. So we take the bells and other pieces in the assembly, polish them to almost a mirror finish, and then heat treat them, and that brings out these beautiful iridescent colors on the piece. And those are finished with an acrylic coat so that that finish stays for as long as possible. To arrive at that finished product, foundry artisans come face-to-face with bronze that has been heated to over 1,300 degrees Celsius. We're pouring 100 pounds per per heat, so 300 pounds a day of of bronze poured. Um, And it really does look like molten lava when you're pouring it. And uh, whenever I show somebody new the pour process, they're always just so awed. The first time I ever participated in a pour in my body. I was like, why are you so close to lava right now? This is terrifying. <laughs> but facing that fear produces skilled artisans valued throughout the bronze-making world. People who have worked in the Arcosani foundry are generally regarded as highly competent, skilled, and creative uh, foundry workers because our foundry is unique in that each of our artisans learns how to do every part of the bronze casting process, which is not typical for foundry work. Whether ceramic or bronze, collectors prize these handcrafted bells for their signature look and sound. From Monocle 24 in Arizona, I'm Gregory Scruggs.
watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe, from one-on-one interviews to industry reports and journeys where you won't believe your eyes. With hundreds of films available now and for free at monocle.com slash film, there's never been more to see. Let's roll. So welcome back to Monocle on Design. Uh, Natalie, you're still in the studio with me. Uh, I'm still in the studio and flipping through your very good design good. section. So this is, this is going to be about me again still. Yeah. I like this. I, I really like the way this show is going. And credit to Maylee, our producer, for making you ask uh, all these mm-hmm. questions. So we spoke about Arizona. But I'm also seeing here that you have a story about furniture brands breaking the mold and sort of changing the rules in the industry a little bit. Tell me about some of your highlights from this story and and how are they innovating? Yeah, so I I, I really wanted to do a story looking at, I guess, different delivery models when it comes to furniture brands particularly, but, you know, also also lighting as well. And I I guess people making well-designed objects. I think it's very easy to you know, just get into a model of like, we'll find an industrial, you know, scale factory that can make this thing and the design will be very simple and straightforward so it can be produced en masse and then shipped out, which maybe that does seem straightforward, but often there are really, really long lead times on these things, particularly if you want a, a higher end brand. So I was kind of looking for, for brands that were making nice products, but also able to turn them around quickly or just approaching things a little bit differently. I picked five, but I, I guess there's two I, I particularly want to talk about. The first is Peter Mabeo, uh, a Botswanan designer, He's got his own brand, and what I like about him is that he works with local craftspeople in a way that is profitable uh, in terms of he, he starts to look at designs that he, he gets other designers involved, that, but also his own designs, and looks at them, and then rather than, I guess, making local craftspeople work towards them, he instead will take the designs and tweak them based on the skill set of the local craftspeople. So what you actually end up with is rather than excluding, you know, people with traditional handicraft skills from, from an, a, you know, a, a production process, you can actually bring them in and build them in and, and ultimately create these products that are quite distinct and quite different. And that's what I quite like about his approach. No, he's taken, I guess, not a, a, a typical commercially minded approach, but he has made it successful on a commercial scale, if, if that makes sense. Did, did that Absolutely. Translate? And it's interesting. Do you find that craft and slower manufacturing is becoming a lot more relevant in the design world and when it comes to creating this, uh, this, uh, these pieces? I think so. I think, I think what people are often actually looking for is, you know, as you start to maybe accumulate pieces for your home, you start to look for things that are, that are meaningful. If, if you've already got a set of chairs and you're going to be replacing them with a new set of dining chairs, you're going to want to pick something that m- maybe has a little bit of meaning for you and, and isn't just beautiful, but actually has some sort of significance. And I think a well-crafted piece of furniture with I guess, craft traditions can kind of give you that. I think people want something that they can feel a a sense of attachment to, and I think craft can often give you that. What we're perhaps becoming better at doing, and I'm talking as a global design community, is really looking at like the, the localised skill sets we have or the localised materials that we have and, and tapping into them and not you know necessarily going abroad for something and shipping something in and then bringing in designers from elsewhere that don't perhaps have an appreciation of, of what's available in that region. 
maybe there's a, a global network of designers and you might have somebody from Milan working with, with Peter in Botswana, but what they're doing is translating that Milanese design to something that is relevant and, and workable in, in the local Botswana context. And then, you know, ultimately, hopefully, uh, I, I would love to purchase those chairs and have them in my house. But that, that's, just, that's just one sort of example. But there is certainly, particularly around the making phase, a, a need to be, to be localised. And Another good example of that is the Copenhagen-based brand Reframed. They've completely reimagined the bedroom simply through uh, the production of a bed frame. They work with a Swedish manufacturer called Norsk Hydro who produce aluminium extrusions which are then powder-coated in Denmark, flat-packed and, and readily shipped all around the world. And, and again, that's a, that's a localised thing. They're a Danish brand. They're working with other regional producers. And what they've really done is is made good design accessible in the bedroom. So they've kind of spiced things up in the bedroom a little bit. We're going we're gonna to hear from Casper Simonson now, who's the founder of Reframed, uh, and we'll throw to that package. Furniture ultimately has a logistics problem. It's really complicated to ship. It's really complicated to show it in a store because it takes a lot of space. It's really complicated to create an experience where your product arrives within a couple of days, delivered directly to your door. Like normally when you buy a sofa, you buy something like that, it's normal for a delivery company to show up, uh, sort of drive up from Poland or wherever it's produced, or sometimes, uh, you know, it's shipped in in shipping containers from the Far East and then just delivered to your door in a way where it's like they dump it on the side of the street and say, now you have eight minutes. Now go and bring that up. Also, by the way, the Euro pellets that it comes on, it's also now yours for good. We sat down in the in like the first days of Reframe. We had a brief. This is the product. This is the criteria that it needs to solve. What do we work with? We obviously thought about doing a wood bed. We thought about other kinds of materials. Um, but it just seemed like aluminum was the right way to go. It was extrusions are awesome to work with. It's quite light and it's extremely durable. And by doing 75% post-consumer recycled aluminum in its composition, that means it's not just like production scrap. It's actually like an old car door or an old fridge door or whatever that's being remelted into aluminum and then going out and then being you know, changed into a bed and then we ship it as the final new product. That's mad cool. And we ship like 72 beds on one pallet. That's crazy. Normally when you ship furniture, you ship a bunch of air and all those things, right? We don't. It's so compact and so nicely done. So that's the idea behind flat packed, and then doing that in a way where you can take it apart and putting it back up again. IKEA has obviously changed that by being flat packed since forever, but also it's a complicated system and we wanted to do something that was elevated. Something that was easy to get hold of, something that was easy to have delivered to your door, being brought up to the fourth floor if that's where you live, but also something that you could take apart and move with you if you're moving. Design is subjective, right? Like we think we've designed something that looks badass. We think it's something that looks cool. We, look, we like to think we've designed something that's bold, yet it fits into lots of different environments for different personality types, etc. And that's something that we love as people, as Reframe. I think we're at a crossroad right now where we have the new wave of design, which is arguably the mutas and the haze and the menus and, and whatnot that all follow a traditional playbook. The playbook set up to facilitate design via retailers and then via contract furniture, which is design going into office spaces and all those things. We think that there is an opportunity to do something that reaches a broader audience in the sense that it, it's a product that's meant to be distributed to the consumer. And we also think there is a big opportunity in terms of making a design brand that's inclusive, 
we always hear uh, different brands you know, talking about how exclusive their product is to sort of justify maybe the retail price. We believe that's fundamentally the wrong way to do it. It's a big mistake that only a few people in this world, relative to how many we are, know who Vitre is, know who the Burleks are, uh, who are arguably the biggest designer of our generation, right? It seems like there's a missed opportunity in terms of being culturally relevant as a design brand. And we are very, very obsessed with the thought of creating a culturally relevant design brand. Now, how do you do that? I keep asking myself that question. Casper, how are we going to be culturally relevant, right? Honestly, um, we don't know. But we know that if everyone else is doing you know, the same thing, it seems, from the outside, we have to dare to do the opposite. We have to be inclusive in our way we tell our story. We have to be transparent in the way we do our furniture production. We got to do people-centric instead of product-centric. When you look at our product, or at least when you product develop, there's a lot of brands out there that would do a chair because it is something that the competitor is doing and they're making money of it. There's different elements. It looks slightly different, but it's ultimately the same chair. So when we do products, we need to do something that solves an issue. And we tried to do that with the bed frame, which was a logistics issue, it was an assembly issue, it was a shipping issue, it was also a design issue. We've designed the bed frame, to that comes a bedside table, storage underneath and a headboard. So that's the first thing, it's like we're looking at the bed and like trying to solve the bed. You know, we're here for the passion of design, not necessarily the passion of sleep. So we are trying to build on that. And we think the next phase for us is to look at the bedroom as a whole. What other products do you have in there and so on. The reason why we look at the bedroom and not you know, going straight to the home is we believe it's going to be a little bit confusing, maybe, if the next product is a chair or a sofa. So the next things we're working on is bed covers, accessories, little bits of here and there that you can add so you can get that reframed look and feel to your bedroom without having to buy a bed because you might already have one that you really like, right? It's going to be a bed cover, it's going to be, you know, jewellery trays, maybe a freestanding bedside table. We're also looking at all kinds of other accessories that would be really cool. But we have to do it for the right reasons, and that is by being people-centric rather than just do what everyone else is doing. That was Casper Simonson, founder of Reframed. And Natalie, that's all we've got time for on today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well, and the forecast too. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Natalie, where can people reach you? It's at nt at monocle.com. Excellent. Thank you very much for listening, and have a lovely week.